So Sunday mornings, just kind of working out a, a little different uh, process and going through the Word right now. Sunday mornings, taking a specific section of a chapter of Second Corinthians and uh, just going deep into it and letting the Lord speak kind of on that specific uh, section deeply. And then on Wednesday night, kind of tackling the rest of the chapter with the goal of, um, you know, it's not our main goal, but uh, we'll probably be getting through Second Corinthians in roughly uh, 13 weeks or so. So uh, that's kind of a, an idea. Um, and so tonight, uh, we're in Second Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll just dig right into it. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. And so uh, this is obviously Paul, the author. He has Timothy, who's like a son in the faith, helping him write this epistle. And, uh, and it's to Corinth, to this church in Corinth, Corinth and saints in Achaia. Now, obviously, that's just basically repeating that. But um, let's look at Acts 18, where we see a bit of the history of the Corinthian church. Um, and I'm going to kind of scan it, so you might not read it point by point with me on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, you'll see where we're gathering this. Uh, Paul, uh, on his second missionary journey, leaves Athens, Greece, and goes down to Corinth. Uh, it's here where he meets a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They're a husband and wife team who are tent makers. Uh, they'd recently come from Italy with uh, with each other because of Claudius, who'd ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And so Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Uh, throughout that time, every Sabbath, he would reason in the synagogue, and he would try to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, some of these Jews opposed Paul and became abusive to him. So he shook his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be your on, on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue, and this is interesting. He left the synagogue, went next door to the house of justice, who was a worshiper of God. So just kind of imagine that scene. Imagine that happening today, you know, uh, just next door. It goes right next door to the house next door and keeps preaching that gospel. And so we see Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household, apparently they must have gone with them or eventually went right next door as well and was part of this uh, fellowship that was taking place in Justice household. And we see Crispus, in his entire household, believed on the Lord. And just what an incredible picture, something we see time and time again in the book of Acts. Uh, when, when a leader of the home will get saved, the rest of the home follows suit. And it's just, there's just testimony that happens. There's transformed lives from the gospel that takes place. And we just see uh, many times, uh, whether it's Lydia's house, or whether it's the Philippian jailer's house, or Cornelius's house, or Crispus here, who was uh, a synagogue leader, who was a Jew, his whole house 
believing in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Now, while they're there, um, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I'm with you, and knowing no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So it's almost like a, just a card of, not get out of jail free, but just kind of like an invincibility cloak or something. Like, go for it, Paul. Just go preach. Um, nothing's going to happen to you here. And so you can imagine how encouraged Cornelius was after kind of a rough start to the ministry there in Corinth. It also says, for I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of the Lord. Um, now, while this happens, the Jews raise a, a fuss and try to get uh, the Christians um, persecuted and thrown out of the city. But um, one of the leaders, uh, Galileo, uh, governor of the area, helped protect Paul. And so just the last verse that I want to look at tonight is in verse 18 there of Acts 18, 18, 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. Uh, now, back in 1 Corinthians, uh, the very first verse says that um, the book was authored by Paul and Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes was the guy at the end of our section there who raised up and tried to raise up a riot against Paul and actually got beat up for trying to raise like this um, uh, mob type thing. And later on, he ends up getting saved. So pretty cool testimony there of all that had happened in Cornelius. And just reminding you of the history here that Paul would end up spending one and a half years in Corinth, finding himself working side by side with Priscilla uh, and Aquila. And so uh, he writes to the church there that he has really cool history with. I mean, there's there's cool stuff that had happened in the formation of this church. They had a really neat testimony of the church getting started. Um, now, I wanted to, uh, let's see here if I can get a load. We're not, I'm having some issues. Oh, here we go. Okay, so uh, real quick here, uh, I wanted to give you guys just a quick map. If I'm able to control, I'm having some issues tonight. Why don't you, yeah, there we go. We've got some GPS there. This is Google Earth of the area of Corinth. And so... Uh, the north end, Greece. Uh, so when we read in Acts 18 of Paul leaving Greece uh, and Athens, you can picture him coming down to this little isthmus, if that's how you say that. <laughs> A little narrow little land strip there uh, to where Corinth was. Now, uh, we also read that um, this book we're starting, Second Corinthians, is also written to the saints in Achaia. So this area right here, um, would be very popular, very wealthy area because you have one sea coming in from the east and one sea coming in from the northwest. And you'd have all this ship and trade coming in. Uh, it became a, a hub. And then they ended up building, back in the days before Paul, a uh, ship canal uh, across this four-mile piece of land here uh, to where, man, it was just a major hub, much like Rome. And so the idea was all of this wealth and all of this market and all of this, um, I, even idolatry and even the Jews ended up there. Um, you know, there was an old saying that all roads lead to Rome. And so 
Paul had a heart to get the gospel to Rome so the gospel could go out from Rome. Uh, similar thing with Corinth. Everything kind of went out of Corinth, um, north and south. And so, man, just this idea of we can get the gospel there, tremendous influence in the world will take place. So now uh, Corinth and Achaia were wicked places nestled there between southern and northern Greece. Anyone passing from north to south would pass through Corinth and stop there and partake of the, uh, <clears throat> the commodities and the commerce uh, there. Uh, rather than sailing around Greece, the safer method was to uh, offload cargo or um, take that canal there. Uh, Corinth had its own form of the Olympic Games called the Centrian Games. It was second in size only to the Olympics. Uh, the philosophers used to say that if you spoke like a Corinthian, uh, you spoke very eloquently and philosophically. Uh, they loved wisdom. They loved, just as the Athenians did, hearing and telling some new thing. Um, <clears throat> it was also known that if you uh, acted like a Corinthian, you were known to be a wicked, pagan, um, living a life of licentious living. Um, in fact, the philosophers would use the term Corinthian girl. Uh, you know, we have heard that in songs and things of our day to speak of a wicked, immoral uh, woman. Um, some of the most blatant and horrendous forms of homosexuality were practiced in Corinth. And there's a big hill in the middle of the city. We're, we're zoomed out a little bit too much there on this uh, slide here to see it. Uh, but to see the temple where the goddess Diana or Aphrodite was worshipped, uh, where thousands and thousands of temple prostitutes uh, would work and worship. And we see that uh, kind of having a play in the church and what Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. Um, Alistair Begg writes, The culture of Corinth was rotten to the core. It was a place of filthy minds, filthy ideals, and filthy ideas. It was a large church, though, that was there. Um, but would often wander away from its foundations of Acts chapter 18. Within the first letter to the, Corinth, to the Corinthians, Paul writes of, of immorality that he's heard about within the church, of sexual immorality, of, um, of a man having his uh, father's wife. He writes of snobbery and clickiness within the church, laziness, how people believed. Um, they wouldn't take stands for purity and for holiness, um, they would challenge authority. Uh, there's just a lot going on that sometimes sounds like the, the church in the 21st century. Um, a quick timeline of what happened after Acts 18. Um, we can look at the timeline slide there, which really doesn't look like a, much of a timeline. But why don't you click a couple slides there, Josh. Uh, here we go. Kind of hard to see. Um, but we find ourselves... Um, in this area right here. So 54 to 57, this is third missionary journey um, where we read from uh, kind of the end of here. He spends this 18 months in Corinth, uh, but where we have 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, it's right in this area here. So the third missionary journey of Paul, um, Acts 19 through 21 is roughly where we find ourselves right now in our letter 
Um, he's spending three years in Ephesus and will head to Macedonia. And uh, these letters were written in this time frame. So First uh, and Second Corinthians were written in these. Now listen what happened within this time frame. It's been said, absence makes the heart grow fonder. But that old adage didn't apply with Paul after he left uh, the Corinthian church, after Acts 18. Um, after Paul left Corinth, he went back down to Antioch, the missionary hub of the early church. And a few months later, he embarked on his third missionary journey, as we just see on our chart there. He would go to Ephesus, and while he's there, he hears of problems that are happening in Corinth. All kind of bickering and backbiting and selfishness and immorality and brothers suing brothers and taking each other to court. All kinds of bad stuff. The report hadn't been good. And so from Ephesus, Paul writes the first letter to the Corinthians and sends it via mail uh, in the hand of his buddy uh, Titus. Okay. Now the reaction to this letter of rebuke, Paul kind of says it's like almost like a spanking to them, you know, should I come with a rod? You know, uh, the reaction is kind of mixed as you can uh, imagine there. Some people repented of their sin with godly sorrow, and we're going to see the effects of that in Second Corinthians as we go through it. Um, but others resented Paul. How dare he rebuke us? And that happens in our church today when people get rebuked. They don't like it. It happens in my life so, so often. And so uh, it happened there uh, in the Corinthian church. And so kind of an uproar happened against Paul in that time. Uh, some in the church at Corinth began to question Paul's authority. Uh, they began to murmur and bicker and cause division. And they would challenge Paul, casting doubts on his integrity, his honesty, and even his courage. Um, and so news of that reaction to his first letter came to Paul as he eventually was in Macedonia or Europe at that time. <clears throat> and uh, so he sat down to pen another letter regarding their reaction, and they called it 2 Corinthians. Um, in this letter, Paul defends himself and he defends his ministry. He becomes bold and uh, confronts his accusers. Uh, so 2 Corinthians, it's going to be a bit of an emotionally charged book here. There's going to be some raw emotions uh, being felt um, as we go through it. Some of it's going to hit home to us uh, as Paul shares his heart to these people that he served so hard and for so long. So just remember, first letter to the Corinthians was a letter of correction, and the second letter is a follow-up to the first where there's been repentance and there's been awesome fruit, there's been zealous growth on the part of the Corinthians, but there's also a bit of a strained relationship with some of the people there uh, in the church. Uh, as Paul knows, he's writing to some divisive men who are even in the church as he writes it. They're speaking poisonous words about Paul. They're causing the church, causing the church to question Paul's leadership and authority and even his apostleship. Uh, we're going to see many practical words of encouragement to the church uh, and our church. Uh, just as in 1 Corinthians, we saw so much of church life lived out. Uh, we're going to see that continue, uh, which will be really good for our church as we're moving forward with things like membership and really calling people to body life. 
Um, and having read through this book a few times in this season, just believe that it's a book that God sovereignly has us in uh, for this place in time. Uh, and so that's a little bit of an introduction written by Paul to the Corinthian church and the saints in that little area on the map there called Achaia. Um, verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, every letter of Paul's starts with this phrase. You're probably familiar with it. Grace and peace. Now, it's interesting. Three of Paul's letters uh, that are pastoral epistles uh, to, the, uh, to Timothy and to Titus, they have the word mercy thrown in there as well. So time and time again, Paul is speaking of the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And three times to pastors, he says, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. And just a simple thing for us tonight is that we will never know peace until we know God's grace. Never. Unless we have more than even a theological understanding of grace, but we've experienced grace. We're never going to know deep peace. Now, Watch out for people that say they've got a peace. Oh, I've got a peace. I've got a spiritual peace and this and that. But it's disconnected from the grace of God. And even to those pastors, the mercy of God. It's a false peace. There's that old saying, the bumper sticker, no Jesus, no peace. But K-N-O-W, if you know Jesus, then you know peace. Um, we want all that is spoken from this book into our church here in 2015 to flow out from the grace and peace that Paul introduces. I mean, it's so good that he starts the book with grace uh, because there's going to be some challenges and there's going to be some, uh, some rebukes and there's going to be some correction and there's going to be some conviction and there's going to be some imperative calls for us towards action. But you guys, it all has to flow from grace. And that was one word in our elders meetings as we talked about what book we would go through. That Just as when we did the men's retreat and we did the book of Ephesians, we didn't want to just start in chapter 4 with a whole bunch of to-do lists for us. to do. Well, just tell me what to do and let's get to it. No, we want to spend that time basking in the grace of God. And we want everything that we're called to, to be from God's just favor upon us through Jesus Christ. His calling of us. His pursuit of us. When we had no merit, we did not earn it. We were destined for hell, children of wrath, sons of darkness, uh, living according to the principality of the air. Prince and principality of the air. You guys know where I'm going with that. And so everything that we go through in the Corinthian book here, it, it comes from grace. And, and man, what a great way to start uh, in a touchy, you know, in a touchy relationship there where people are just wanting to pull apart every word. What, what did he mean by that? Oh, what did he mean by that? Hey, go back to his intro. Grace and peace. So, so when we read it, you got to read it with that tone. It's a tone of grace and peace. Uh, in verses 3 through 11, we read of the comfort that Paul has experienced through suffering and the purpose of that uh, suffering, what God has in mind sovereignly through suffering. And that was our Sunday morning in-depth study, verses 3 through 11. Uh, but we're just going to touch on a couple things here tonight. Uh, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. So starts out with this doxology, blessing and praise to God. Uh, he is the Father's of mercy, Father of mercies. And just as we did on Sunday, you just spend time pulling apart not only the grace and peace that's to us, but these incredible riches, as Ephesians would say, of the mercies of God upon us. He is so merciful, just as he is so gracious to us. Uh, Paul will go on to expound on what he means by suffering and what it's all about, but he starts by praising God at the thought of it all. As Martin Luther said, a man who knew, uh, this is a guy who, man who knew, a man who knew about tribulation, he writes, in times of tribulation, come let us sing a psalm and startle the devil. So what a great practice, you know, as we are going through times of trouble and tribulation, uh, worship the Lord, just as David did, and it will startle the devil. Um, we studied on Sunday that the word comfort, that God is the God of, all, uh, God of all comfort, that's a name for him, and he's one who comforts us. And we talked about how, you know, so many times in these verses, the word comfort is used, and consolation, which means comfort. But notice uh, again, I just want to touch on this from Sunday, that we won't have comfort unless we know the comforter. Not only the God of all comfort, but the one that he has sent, the third person of the Trinity, the helper. Because in com- the word comfort here is paraclesis, and it's the same word of a name that's given to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, as Jesus calls him the helper, the comforter, and he will be sent out by the Son, uh, for this church age that we're living in. So we'll never know the comfort that we're reading of here unless not only do we know Jesus so we can know peace, but we'll never know comfort unless we know the Comforter and we have him dwelling in us and upon us as the latter part of our chapter tonight we'll speak about. But we see in verse 4 that the God of all comfort comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you weren't here on Sunday morning, I just urge you to download the podcast or get online and listen to it. It's up. It was up Sunday afternoon. Uh, You can listen to this uh, in-depth study on our God who's the God of all comfort. If you're going through something rough right now, some affliction, some grinding in your life, uh, and the Lord has such a word for you through Sunday's message. But one thing I really felt like was for us tonight who would come here tonight, you know, uh, this is, you know, this is a a special group here tonight, not saying that we're elite or anything like that, but we're a group of people who are beginning to hear the Lord and have him impress on our hearts the importance of the regular gathering of the saints. And being here, even at a midweek study and being in a core group and being in a 242 group, those are times where the Lord is equipping us for the works of the ministry. These are times where we're, especially in this season where we're in Second Corinthians, you guys are going to get some in-depth look at uh, the, this ministry book here uh, as Paul's going to teach us some valuable lessons of, of you know, the, the ups and the downs of the ministry life. And with that being said, the God of all comfort... He comforts us, praise God, but it doesn't just end with us. Here, having comfort, you know, yay, now I can like 
lay down on my bed at night and just be cozy and comfy and like nothing's wrong in the world. I don't have a care in the world. And it was just so comfy to me. Like that's not where it ends. There's, a, there's the word that here and it's uh, second line down there. It's all the comfort comes to us that we may be able to go out with comfort ministries, with mercy ministries to the farthest parts of the world. People that are in terror right now. People that are in hardships beyond our imaginations and they have no comfort. They don't know the Holy Spirit who is the source of comfort. They've never had him dwell in them or be upon them. Um, You know, at best, he is alongside of them, convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment. So God has a word for us tonight, Wednesday night crowd, uh, you know, and, and I even want to press, preface that with grace. In Hebrews chapter 10, Paul says, because we have, uh, whoever it was, it might not have been Paul, the author of Hebrews, he writes, because we've been washed by the blood of Jesus and sprinkled and cleansed, and now we have a, a conscience that's been cleansed from dead works so that now we can serve the living God, he says, because of that, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but all the more come together as you see the day approaching. And so we see the importance of us being together. Um, and one of the reasons is it's something that's been bought and paid for for us so that we could be equipped to go out and tell people about Jesus. So we've been comforted with a purpose so that others can be comforted And I made a little joke on Sunday that hit a brick wall. But anyways, there's a whole lot of words comfort here. And uh, it it can be a rough sentence to um, (laughs) read out loud. There's just a whole lot of comfort going on is what I'm trying to get across. Now, one of the purposes from Sunday morning of this comforting is so that we have a ministry. We're being prepared for ministry. Uh, Charles Spurgeon writes, Why does God lay trouble upon his people and comfort them in it? It is that he may make them comforters of others, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. A man who's never had any trouble is very awkward when he tries to comfort troubled hearts. Hence, the minister of Christ, if he is to be of much use in God's service, must have great trouble. Prayer, meditation, and affliction, says Melanthion, are the three things that make the minister of God. I want to say that again. Prayer, meditation, and affliction. Now, as I was reading that, uh, the writer of, who was quoting Spurgeon said, so pray for me because I'm a minister. And my thought was, oh, no, no, we need to pray for each other because we are all ministers and God is comforting us because he has a work for us, friends, of comforting. So I'm praying for you because prayer and meditation and affliction are something that the Lord has for you to equip you for the works of the ministry. Uh, He's preparing you, you guys. I look around this room And I just look around, and I know, and I know you know, and you know I know. And we don't all know each other's troubles, but there is pain represented here. There's sorrow, there's frustration, there's physical infirmity. But every single one of you have been given something to comfort someone else that I will never be able to relate to someone in the way that you can. 
I'll just never be able to. Um, you know, and, and I'm able to hear of someone's trouble and I can say, you know what, man, you got to go talk to the greens. You got to, man, you got to go talk to easy, man. You got to go talk to Nate and Danielle and you got to go talk to Blaine. They've all experienced that. Had a guy here a few weeks ago who was in a battle in Afghanistan and his job was to go around and pick up body parts of his buddies that were, you know, he says, and just putting those in bags that, you know, I'll never get over that. And I said, man, you got to talk to, to Troy in our church. He, he's been to Afghanistan. He's lost, you know, they, they've been there. He can comfort, I'd, you know, I've lost people and I can comfort you on that. But he's been in the, in the horror of war and he's had Jesus there comfort. Go see Troy. You know, that's we're being equipped, you guys, for the ministry that God has for us. So prayer, meditation. Of course, meditation on the word, not some weird like, okay, meditation on the Lord and who he is, is what Spurgeon talks about there. Some of you are like, ooh, really, you get to do that? No. Um, There must be prayer, there must be meditation, and there must be affliction. You cannot pronounce the promise aright in the ear of the afflicted unless you yourselves have known its preciousness in your hour of trial. It is God's will that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, should work by men full often, according to that ancient word of his, and he quotes Isaiah, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfort to Jerusalem. These comforting men are to be made. They are not born so. They have to be made by passing through the furnace themselves. They cannot comfort others unless they have had trouble and have been comforted in it. You know, this year I've had um, two uncles pass away and one aunt. And, and one was an aunt and uncle married, you know. And so as I've been there with my cousins weeping with them, they have told me, I remember years ago when you were 19, you know, and we're sitting out on the college campus together, and I was in welding scrub, you know, welding, and I was just burned, holes burnt through me, and I sat outside just crying by myself, and my cousin would come up, and he would come, you know, he'd just, I don't know what to say, Rory, it just, I hurt for you, man, and, and now, you know, a number of years later, I'm able to be there with him and be like, I, you remember when I wept there in that concrete quad area? I'm here for you now, buddy, because I know the pain, and let me just pray, and let me just tell you, Jesus is the God of all comfort. And, and so we have been given these, these gifts of affliction to train us for ministry. To be effective for the Lord, we need to go through affliction. And God is going to take us through affliction so we can speak God's word in tender sympathy. Job had three buddies that, you know, just didn't even really care. And, you know, just they'd haphazardly throw stuff out there. And Job would say to them, you guys are miserable comforters, all of you. So harsh, so uncaring. So often we have someone come and tell us the pain they're going through. And we already have an answer for them before they've even told us what they're going through. Almost interrupt them. And man, just like Job's like, man, I just need you to be quiet and just listen, I'm hurting. Spurgeon again, just, uh, he said, the keys of men's hearts hang up in the narrow chamber of suffering and he who has not been there can scarcely know the art of opening the recesses of the soul. And so just looking around this room, man, we can even just look at each other and know 
I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. I know what you must be going through. <laughs> you know, um, man, what God must have for you in other people's lives to point them to Jesus. Um, and so with all that being said, uh, throughout this next section through verse 11, um, we have, listen, listen to this. We've got comfort, 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 comfort. Consolation, consolation, which means comfort. Comfort, consolation, consolation. And then we also have sufferings, tribulation, trouble, sufferings, affliction, suffering, suffer, sufferings, trouble, burden, despair, and death. That's a whole lot of bad stuff, but there's more comfort. And listen to this. We also have in this section, and I'm just skimming because we studied it in depth on Sunday. We also have salvation, salvation, God who raises the dead, deliver, 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 and help. There's way more of the good news of the gospel in this section of scriptures than there is of the the sorrowful trouble of affliction. And so uh, moving on in verse 12, again, if you weren't here for those verses, listen online. Verse 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. So in this section, Paul begins defending himself against some accusations where people are saying that he is fickle and unreliable. Namely in that he had said that he was going to come through on a certain trip to Macedonia. I'm going to go to uh, see you guys if the Lord wills. And he said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. But because that didn't end up happening, um, his, his critics are really accusing him for being flaky and fickle uh, in his planning even though he had that magic phrase, if the Lord desires or if the Lord wills, uh, when he had said that. Um, But here he simply is stating he has a clear conscience before the Lord and he trusts that the people filled with the Spirit there in Corinth will be able to understand that. He had a clean conscience as much as he was aware that that, uh, he and his co-laborers had behaved in the world with, first of all, simplicity, which uh, can mean generosity, just he was living a life of, it can also mean sincerity, he wasn't a hypocrite, and he was just confident. My life is not one of hypocrisy. If you know me, you know that. Uh, We've lived in godly sincerity, which speaks of his purity of motive, and he'll say that again in chapter 2, verse 17. We aren't as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity. We had a sincere ministry. J.B. Phillips writes it this way to help kind of make things a little easier. Now, it is a matter of pride to us, endorsed by our conscience, that our activities in this world, particularly our dealings with you, have been absolutely above board and sincere before God. They weren't of fleshly wisdom. Now, the Corinthian people loved fleshly wisdom. And even a lot of people in the church in Corinth loved worldly wisdom. They loved vain and empty philosophy. 
that wisdom of the world. And Paul would address that through the first couple chapters um, of, of uh, 1 Corinthians. And uh, let's just browse it real quick. Um, he says, I didn't come in verse 1, verse 17, with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Just jump down verse 20. We're just skimming some of these things. Where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews it's a stumbling block, to the Greeks it's foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he goes into this whole section in the rest of chapter 1 of who God calls and chooses for ministry. It's the weak and the foolish and the base thing to put to shame the strong and the mighty and the wise things. That's who God uses. And so uh, just, I think we get the point in all of that, but the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians he really hammers that, man, the gospel, it's not something that's going to tickle your, your wise brain in the flesh. It's foolishness. In fact, you're going to have to come to terms with that you're actually spiritually bankrupt and of nothing, and you've got to fall on your knees before the God that died for you. Uh, to the world, that's just fool. Especially, and to the Greeks, who they had those gods in mind, you know, the giant buff dudes with lightning that they'd throw or whatever, you know. And, um, and so the, the idea of the, the dying savior, um, was, was ridiculous to them. Uh, they came by the grace of God. They came, uh, as Paul says there in verse 12, even more abundantly to the Corinthians, their ministry was especially and excessively gracious towards the Corinthians. Verse 13, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours, in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul wanted the Corinthians to know, I haven't had any hidden meanings in anything that I've said to you, or in any of my letters. I've always been just upfront with you, sincere with you guys, Everything's out there for everyone to see. And you know, that's our heart as a church and as a leadership of a church. Something that we endeavor for. You know, we don't want to encourage or call this body to anything that we don't see in the word or implied by the word of God. Every direction that we lead this church in, we want to be able to come to the word for the principles and for the methodology. Um, Though some don't really understand that, just as Paul says, some haven't understand, but we trust that you will understand. And, and that's just where we're at as a church, as we're going through just a new season with new people and new growth, and some haven't understand the direction that we've been leading uh, and just calling towards body life. Um, you know, 
it's nothing that's been manipulative or hidden. It's something that for two years we've just been laying out before the church, ecclesiology and understanding what God's heart is for this local body. And so he just basically says, and in the end, we trust that you'll understand, that you'll understand. And, uh, and even in the day of our Lord Jesus, we will all be there together, just like-minded and in unity. And uh, I like what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? You know, there's so many crowns talked about in the Bible about end times and being before God and throwing our crowns before the Lord. But you know what? As ministers, you know what so many of those crowns are? It's the fruits of our ministries and the people that are following Jesus that will be there with us. Are you, you guys, not our crown, that one day we will be there before the Lord Jesus, being able to say, look, Lord, you did all this. You brought these people from Calvary Chapel of Crook County. We went through times of confusion and, oh, man, the elders are trying to mislead us. It's a cult, you know, or whatever. You know, and we're just like, we're just trying to, let's just move towards Jesus, you guys. Let's just move towards Jesus. And we all will be crowns. And I'll be some of your crowns. You know, we're just, we are ministering to one another uh, to the end, right? Uh, verse 15 and 16. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way um, to Judea. So he kind of is talking again about that plan that he had. Uh, I intended to come to you before um, by way of Macedonia on my way down to Judea. It didn't end up happening out. He wanted to give them like a second visit. J.B. Phillips says, I wanted to give you a second treat. You know, just being with you, be like a treat. Um, but as we'll see in a little bit, that those plans got changed. And it was primarily because of just some rough stuff that was going on between Paul and the Corinthian church. It happens with Paul. That's kind of encouraging, huh? Rough, rough stuff in ministry. How many of you want to be in ministry now? Amen. You got anybody encouraged here? <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, verse 17 going on, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. Again, there were some saying, you can't trust Paul. First, he said that he would come through the first time and then he didn't. He says yes, like he's saying no, and he says no, like he's saying yes. How can you trust him in other things, even about salvation and being, making it there on the end? Um, and, and so we see a little bit of what Paul's writing towards here. And, you know, just as I was writing this, I'm, just, I'm writing it mindful of just as we are prayerful and delicate in our plannings for this church and what we've got going on with Nepal and um, just not going to give you any specifics, but we've had some dates given to us from Mountain Child that are possible dates that we could go. And so we're just praying about, Lord, is this the right timing? Should we be going? Um, who should be going? Where should we be going? Would we go to, uh, to see um, Bishnu up there in Singati? Would we go see Cynthia and uh, Dil in Bedour? 
Um, would we go, you know, Lord, where would you have us go? And we've been fasting, haven't we? And we've been praying on Wednesdays about God's direction. And, uh, and so kind of the next little piece of our direction from the Lord are these dates that have been given to us. And so we just want to be so prayerful as we, you know, are in communication with Mountain Child. And as we're in communion, you know, not that they would be like, oh, they changed their plans. Oh, what a bunch of, like they were with Paul here. But, um, but, you know, we, I was just ministered to this today, you know, as I got an email um, in the last day of these dates. And, man, we as elders and we as a church, we don't plan our trips to Nepal lightly or who we're going with or where we're going. Um, we're not, we don't want to plan it according to the flesh, like Paul says here. Um, we want to be able to say, hey, this is what we think God's calling us to, and is that a possibility? So just some direction to be praying for. You guys, um, we just we want to be just the Holy Spirit opening every door and every direction uh, as we move forward with our ministry to Nepal. Uh, verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanius, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. Okay, so pull, pull this apart just a little bit. You've got the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among the Corinthians by these three preachers as he lists them. Um, just notice, maybe if you've got a pen, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We've seen that already a couple times um, in this chapter. Uh, was it chapter 3 where he's, or uh, verse 3, where he's the um, Father of mercies, and the Father of Jesus Christ, and the God of all comfort. And so he's, you know, he's, Jesus is the Son of God, you guys. And um, in believing that, John 20, 31 says, the whole book of John was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, which means he's the Savior, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Now that has all kinds of salvific connotations to it. But there's a reason John wrote that gospel, that we would know that the perfect one came and died for our sins as the lamb that would be slain. And believing that, we would have life in his name. And then John would also say in his epistle, 1 John 5, 5, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, and so this message of Jesus, the Son of God, it wasn't a confusing message, and it wasn't a message of compromise, or, oh, yes, no, maybe so, you know. It was affirmative. It was clear. Paul preached a Jesus who was completely reliable and worthy of trust. And so how could Paul be so quickly considered unreliable and unworthy of trust. I mean, think about that. That's, that's an argument of the messenger of the message. Look at what is being preached, the reliability of Jesus Christ. Now, you can look at false teachers. You can get on various TV channels and <laughs> various websites and various churches, maybe even in this town, and you'll see that there's an incomplete gospel being preached, it's worldviews that are being preached. There's compromise. It's self-gain, self-glory, self-motivation. 
um, you know, health, wealth, and so on and so forth, false, incomplete theologies and doctrines. And, and by looking at that, then you can begin to question, okay, um, there's got to be something about the teachers and preachers that's a little shifty. But when you look at biblical orthodoxy and strong sound doctrine based upon the word of God, it's got to say something about the messengers as well, by the grace of God. Um, it should have made the Corinthian Christians more trusting of Paul as he preached Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's where Paul got dogmatic, not on his planning, but on his preaching. Verse 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So Jesus Christ is a sure yes and amen. All the promises of God are yes and amen. They're not, yes, no, maybe so. They are, you can take the promises of God to the bank. And you know, Paul wrote this verse out of a whole lot of suffering and affliction is where we get this verse. And Spurgeon would say, we might never have had this precious verse if Paul had not been so ill-treated by these men at Corinth. They did him great wrong and caused him much sorrow of heart. Yet you see how the evil was overruled by God for good, and through their unsavory gossip and slander, this sweet sentence was pressed out of Paul. Sweet sentence pressed out of Paul here. All the promises of God in Jesus are yes. And amen. You guys want to say amen on a Sunday? You want to say yes on a Sunday or hallelujah? Man, when the promises of God are being read, you can join Ken Curvin and be like, woo, amen. Okay? All right. Um, <clears throat> moving right along. And real quick, Jesus, in Revelation 3.14 uh, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so when you're preaching Jesus, the son of God, you are preaching the yes and the amen. He is the faithful and true and his promises are good. His promises since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the very first gospel, it's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first time we see the gospel in the Bible, where God the Father says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a story about Jesus coming and crushing Satan. That was the promise of God, and we saw it fulfilled throughout all the scriptures coming and, and resting in Jesus in his perfect life and death and resurrection. Um, verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our heart as a guarantee. Now we see three different works of the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit who anoints us in verse 21, uh, and, and actually is anointed onto us by God. Now the word anointed speaks of uh, an, anointing, an anointing that we would share with the prophets and the priests and the kings of the Old Testament. We have a special work to do. 
an anointing of power. And then we have, in verse 22, the sealing of the Spirit. And Ephesians 4.30 speaks of that. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the word sealed means, you know, obviously to put a seal on something. But it also brings identity to something. A seal often had a stamp on it. It was something that protect and brought security and meant that something was going to be delivered safely. That's another work of the Holy Spirit um, in, the, in the Christian's life. And then it also says that uh, we have been given the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now this means the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is the first installment or the down payment of all that God wants to accomplish uh, within us and through us. And Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I like what Guzik writes, The Holy Spirit is just a pledge of greater things to come. As Christians, God has purchased us on the lay, excuse me, he has purchased us on the layaway plan and has given us an impressive down payment. He won't walk away from the final payment because he has so much invested already. Okay, we've been uh, given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of all that he's going to do in us. And that he's going to finish us uh, to the end. Last couple of verses here tonight. Verse 23, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. A uh, couple quick observations. Notice Paul makes an oath here. Uh, it's a promise that he's not lying. And it's something he does in many other places in Romans 1.9, Galatians 1.20, Philippians 1.8. Now Jesus did say that we should live our lives in a way that oaths wouldn't be necessary. But he also doesn't forbid oaths or promises. He forbids taking an oath with some sort of hidden agenda and how you can get out of it. And if you can make that hidden agenda happen, then you're free and clear. And it's, it's deception from the get-go. And he rebukes uh, the, the legalists and the Pharisees on the Sermon on the Mount uh, because of what they were doing, as well as in um, Matthew chapter 19. Uh, and so we see that that's lived out in Paul here as he found times where he would have to say, God is my witness, or before God I do not lie, or again, God is my witness, or I call God as witness here because he wants them to know guys i'm telling you the truth here that to spare you i came no more to corinth and that's a hard thing to have to promise i swear to you the reason i didn't come to you is because we'd had too much tough stuff going on and it wouldn't have been profitable and it wouldn't have been good and so i bypassed you guys but guess what I'm still in your lives. I still have a ministry and a purpose to you. And I still plan on coming again to you. In verse 24, he wanted them to know that we, uh, let me word it the way he did in verse 24, not that we have dominion or rule over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. And so, um, Paul didn't want to cross some line in his relationship with them as he had been in a good biblical way ruling and leading them. But there'd been a point where, man, there had been some conflict and some issues and he just needed to let it breathe for a little bit and let the Holy Spirit do a work and, uh, and didn't want to be a tyrannical dictator in his leadership with them. Um, 
as uh, Peter says, that we're not to be lords over those entrusted to us, but to be examples to the flock. And then that last verse says, for by faith you stand. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand. You guys, we are saved in as much as we are standing in the gospel by faith. And does that mark your life tonight? Are you someone that's standing in the good news of the gospel that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and now he ever lives to intercede for us? We can stand in that. Now, Romans 11 says, let's just look at verse 20 as it's on the screen. Because of unbelief, Israel was broken off and you stand by faith. Now, it's interesting. Uh, you wrote to me today, you're in Romans 11 today, Casey, and, and just how being in Romans 11 tonight, we're praying for Israel and we're praying for the Palestinian territories around Israel and Romans 11 says that uh, there's a picture of an olive tree which is Israel and um, because of unbelief branches were broken off of that olive tree because they wouldn't believe and then because of their unbelief God was able to do an incredible work of salvation to the non-Jews and to non-Israel right here and he was able to take me by his grace and graft me into and, and it says we're called a wild olive tree and we're grafted into this, uh, the promises for Israel. My mom has a tree that she was given when she shared her bone marrow with her sister. Uh, it's called a fruit salad tree. And it's a tree that has like all kinds of different fruits grafted into it. And so you can make a fruit salad out of it, which we're big into in my family. And uh, praise God, man, don't we, have a, the, don't we have the fruit salad tree in the church here, you know? But God's not done with Israel. So there's a warning there. Be careful lest you get prideful and haughty. They were broken off because they wouldn't believe. They didn't stand by faith. And it says there, you are put in there because you stand by faith. And so tonight, we're going to move towards prayer for Israel and for the Palestinian territories.